This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Oda a las cosas. Amo las cosas loca locamente. Me gustan las tenazas, las tijeras. Adoro las tazas, las argollas, las soperas. Sin hablar, por supuesto, del sombrero. Amo todas las cosas, no solo las supremas, sino las infinitamente chicas. El dedal, las espuelas, los platos, los floreros. On Monday, I said about writing a talk on right livelihood. And on Thursday, I wrote the last few lines and then came down to sit. And halfway through the period, a voice in my head very clearly said, it's the wrong talk. And I've heard that voice before. And except for once, I've always ignored it because it's a little inconvenient. <laughs> um, and I have always regretted it every time that I've ignored it. And um, I tried for a while, another day, to fix what I had written. And then I gave in and I uh, started over. Because you know, when you give a talk, there's actually three talks. The one you thought you gave, the one you actually gave, and the one you wish you'd given. <laughs> so this is the talk I wish I'd given, and I hope for all our sakes that it's the right, the right talk. Um, and you know, it wasn't that it was the wrong theme, right livelihood, but I felt that I wasn't saying it rightly. And so I hope that this is saying it rightly, at least and to some extent. Uh, Neruda, I started with the first short section of his well-known Ode to Things. And as I'm sure you know, he's, he's one of the best known Latin American poets, one of the most loved, certainly in his country. Um, in fact, it's, he was so loved that he once read to a stadium filled with 100,000 people. Can you imagine a poet <laughs> filling a stadium in this country? <laughs> um, and not once, he did this actually twice. The second time to a mere 70,000 um, after he had come back from um, his acceptance speech in Oslo. And one of these occasions, I, I'm guessing that it was the second one because the first time was in Brazil. The second time he was in Chile, in Santiago, in the National Stadium. And he was reading from the book that he's most known for, um, 20 verses, um, 20 love poems and a song of despair. And when he got to the 20th poem, uh, which begins, tonight I can write the saddest lines. Write, for example, the night is shattered and the blue stars shiver in the distance. It's, it's the, the theme of the book and it's the, the best known poem. 
It is said that 70,000 people got up and started reciting the poem with him. Um, I think about that and I get chills. So, and, and in Chile, children would grow up um, reciting his poetry. I mean, they, they knew it by heart. And so this is from his Ode to Things. And I started by reading it in Spanish because I can. <laughs> and you should never miss an opportunity to, to read Neruda in, in Spanish, if you can. Um, but also because the, the, the English doesn't quite do justice to the music of his poetry. So that first section of Ode to Things says, I have a crazy, crazy love of things. I like pliers and scissors. I love cups, rings, and bowls. Not to speak, of course, of hats. I love all things, not just the grandest, also the infinitely small, thimbles, spurs, plates, and flower vases. And so when I was thinking of right livelihood, I've been making my way uh, systematically through the Noble Eightfold Path. And right livelihood is the fifth factor. Technically, I was the, the next one I had to do was right action. But I knew that I was coming here, and I knew I felt it would be appropriate, more appropriate, to speak of right livelihood in a lay center. And you know, the usual definition of right livelihood is, uh, or the way that we consider it in our order, is work work a spiritual practice, you know, how to support yourself and do so in such a way that it is um, affirming of your life and of others' lives. But one of the things that I think about a, a bit in my work at Dharma Communications and the monastery, and that I've actually always uh, liked to think about is things and the creation of things, uh, all sorts of things cups, rings, and bowls, and thimbles, and spurs, but also dreams, and thoughts, and words. And so I decided to speak of right livelihood mostly in terms of right relationship, which Shugen Sensei has called the ninth factor in the Eightfold Path, right relationship, um, about that love for all things, you know, for physical things, for people who make these things, for the people that we interact, whatever our job is, and that, I, that we interact with, and love for that labor itself, whatever your labor happens to be. So right livelihood is samyag ajivo. And the Buddha defined it um, in a very Buddha-esque way as the opposite of wrong livelihood. <laughs> so not engaging in a profession that does harm to others. And technically, this is uh, business in weapons, in human beings, in meat, and in toxicants, and in poison. And I was remembering, I, I read somewhere about a man who had made his fortune making rat poison. And he would, apparently he was very good at it. He made quite a bit of money doing this. And he would go to parties and regale his guests or the guests with 
um, detailed descriptions of the ingredients in the poison and the way that the rats would die. And the guests were both, as you can imagine, horrified and enthralled. You know, there was something about it. And, you know, this is where the precepts get a little tricky, don't they? I mean, what would happen to the city <laughs> without rat poison or without poison for bed bugs or water bugs, as you Americans so endearingly call them? Um, in Mexico, we call them by their true names, cockroach. <laughs> and the, given their size, no euphemism can disguise them. <laughs> so I guess somebody has to do this work, but so technically, this would be part of wrong, wrong livelihood. So right livelihood is not engaging in any of these. And also, in, um, there was a long list of reading marks on cloth gnawed by mice, offering blood sacrifices, making predictions based on the fingertips, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> laying demons in a cemetery, snake charming, uh, snake charming, and you know, it goes on in that vein. So none of these things are right livelihood, but of course also not lying, you know, not cheating, not stealing, not profiting at the expense of others. And just the other day, a couple of days ago, I got a phone call from Con Edison man, and he was very gruff on the phone, very, very abrupt, and he said, I want to speak to the owner. And I said, well, he's not here. And he said, well, we have not received any payments on this account, and we're shutting down the electricity in an hour. And I said, ooh, that's not good. And then I flashed on a call that we had gotten at the monastery. Exactly the same thing, except somebody else picked up the call. And then they tell me, oh, the Con Edison man is on the phone. He says they're going to shut down the electricity. I'm like, ooh, that's not good. And then as I'm walking to get our, our uh, bills, I realize we don't have Con Edison. We, we have NYSEG. So I get on the phone and I said exactly the same thing I said to the man. I said, we don't have Con Edison, we have NYSEG. The first time he, the, at the monastery he hung up. The second time he started to say something and I said goodbye and I hung up. And then I went to look at the bills and here we actually do have Con Edison. <laughs> so, um, luckily I still think it was a scam because the lights, as you see, are still on. We have paid and we're fine. Um, and I wanted to call him back. I have to admit, I wanted to call him back and say, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Why do you think that this is a good way to make your living? How can you live <laughs> with yourself you know, doing this? I didn't, but I, I wish I had. And the same thing happens with Bank of America. Somebody calls and says, we're from Bank of America. What's your account number? And when I picked up, I said, well, if you know if we're, that we're with Bank of America, then you should have our account number. They hang up. You know? So that's not right livelihood, needless to say. And you know, when I think about it in terms of right uh, relationship, you know, I think of <clears throat> this man or this woman, you know, whoever it would be, what, um, uh, acrobatics, kind of mental acrobatics you'd have to do to justify that. 
you know, to feel that this, that this is a valid and um, sustainable way you know, to, to make a living. So the right relationship to people and things and to the planet, of course, that supports us. And Neruda says, oh yes, the planet is sublime. It's full of pipes weaving handheld through tobacco smoke. He loved pipes. He, he was a pipe smoker himself. And keys and salt shakers. That is everything made by the hand of man. Every little thing, shapely shoes and fabric and each new bloodless birth of gold. Eyeglasses, carpenters' nails, brushes, clocks, compasses, coins, and the so soft softness of chairs. In Spanish, that is la suave suavidad de las sillas. You know, you just want to say that, right? <laughs> Everything that is made by human hands. Everything that is created by a human mind. Each new bloodless birth of a thing that didn't exist before. The problem, the problem is most of it, a lot of it, not most of it, a lot of it is not bloodless, right? A lot of what we create and the way that we create it leaves a large wake behind. Yvonne Chouinard, the, the founder of Patagonia said, every piece of crap, because it was manufactured, contains within it something of the priceless. Applied human intelligence, for one, natural capital for another, and natural capital for another. Something taken from the forest or a river or soil that cannot be replaced faster than we depleted. We're wasting our brains and our only world on the design, production, and consumption of things we don't need and aren't good for us. And he said, in fact, that you can't actually have a sustainable company because you are always taking faster that you can put back. And so that really, really, you can have a responsible company. And the same is true for each of us. Can we be responsible individuals in those very interactions, in the way that we go about our workday, in what we make, whether we make physical things or not? You know, how are we relating to one another? Really, that is the question. How, what do we say to each other? How do we think about one another? You know, we often forget that. And we've heard this many, many times, all of us, that karma is created by speech and word and thought. And thought is no less, certainly no less powerful, and in some ways no less evident. You know, we, we, we learn to move fast so as not to see what we don't want to see. But really, if we want to see, it's right there in the face of the other and how they're relating to us. So how we think about them directly shapes our world, certainly our interactions, but our world quite directly. And there are so many ways to interact with one another. Right? We can compete, we can cooperate, we can ingratiate, defer, dominate, destroy, you know, in a work environment. And it all depends on one thing, really, how you understand this. That's really what it comes down to. 
Because if I come, if I approach a situation, any situation, from a sense of lack, right? there's something that you're going to take from me. There's only a limited number of resources, like I was uh, saying in another talk. If I think there's only enough goodness to go around, then I need to get mine, right? So if I approach any situation from that sense of lack, I will be threatened. You will threaten me, and I will do what I can to protect myself. What if we see it a little bit differently? That there is more than enough to, to go around. <laughs> There's, there is so much we can't even know how much there is, actually. And when we say that work practice is doing work, a spiritual practice, what does that actually mean? Now, what is spiritual and what isn't? What's important? What's important work? What's an important object? And what can be overlooked? Do some things res uh, deserve more respect than others? Do some people deserve more respect than others? O irrevocable river of things, no one can say that I loved only fish or the plants of the jungle and the field, that I loved only those things that leap and climb, desire and survive. It's not true. Many things conspired to tell me the whole story. Not only that they touch me or my hand touched them, they were so close that they were a part of my being. They were so alive with me that they lived half my life and will die half my death. Let it be known, these are my words, <laughs> not Neruda, and that not only did I love those things that leap and climb, but that I love the blender, the stethoscope, the computer and the desk that it rests on, the metro card, that crack on the sidewalk on my way to work, the rumble of the subway train, the sound of car horns, and that woman sitting next to me who's wearing my mother's perfume, or the young boy with a skateboard. He has this uh, skateboard tucked, wedged between his feet. A man selling fake glasses on the corner of 42nd and Broadway. Let it be known that I love them too. See, right livelihood, I think, is about living rightly, completely, you know, living awake, about regarding all the many things and moments and individuals that conspire to tell me the whole story, as Neruda said. Because they are the whole story. What other story is there? Because not only did they touch me or my hand touched them, they were so close that they were a part of my being. And we are a part of each other's being. That coworker that annoys you, that intransigent boss, a part of your being. And I had been thinking this week in particular, for some reason, I'm not sure why, but this week in particular, I have been thinking about all of you who for the past 15 years, every week, 
come to do the flowers, to do the altars, uh, to repair everything that needs repairing in this building, to scrub the toilets, you know, that have transcribed and designed flyers and made phone calls and written emails, you take care of the books, and your hands that touch these walls and the earth, the tomato plants upstairs, those hands that know the feel of a hammer, know the feel of scissors and thread, of the crooked color printer. And week after week, you come and you do this with no thought of reward. You do know there's no reward. <laughs> well, actually there is, the work itself, the doing of the work itself. Those of you goddesses who have taken care of Sanjin better than we could have at the monastery, who care for our teacher when he lets you. And through times of great change, you have stayed constant. That is right livelihood. That's living rightly, fully, and doing sacred work. Just as taking that seat, taking the seat of enlightenment, is doing sacred work. You know, to sit day after day, quietly, in order to understand yourself. Because, you know, it actually doesn't really matter who's sitting up here. And it doesn't matter really what they say. I mean, a little inspiration helps, yes. Um, but you already have what you need. And you have your body and you have your mind. I've said this, you don't even need a cushion. I mean, it's a little more comfortable, but you don't even need a cushion. No matter who sits here telling you what, you're the one who needs to turn the light around, right? And you can, and you do, on this day and many, many days. So you already have, and you also hear this all the time, you already have everything that you need. But don't ever forget that. Because we do, we do forget. Sometimes when things get hard or, or things are overwhelming or when you just, when it's difficult, you know, or, or when something happens that just shakes us deeply, we forget that really all we need to do is sit down just a couple of minutes, close your eyes, almost close your eyes, and turn the light around. Isn't that completely true, that it doesn't matter what we say <laughs> up here? Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if, if we say something, mm, let me leave it, leave it there. It does matter to some extent, of course, what we say. And also, you know, don't get fooled by the word sacred just as was with the word, uh, word, word spiritual. A thing doesn't own sacredness, but it doesn't lack it either. And so where is it? Where is that sense of sacredness? It doesn't take much, actually, to see the light that all things have, but you have to open your eyes. And with people, Sometimes with people you have to work a little harder because they talk back. But it's there. <laughs> it's there also. And in our case, paradoxically, you have to close your eyes in order to see 
But as you know, that's only one side. Because there is always that moment in which you stand up and step out. And you have to keep them open. So you can see that everything is, in fact, illuminated. To see that you're the one who creates and the one who destroys. It is said that one of the Desert Fathers would weave baskets by day, and at night he would destroy them, every one. And he would do this every day. Every day he would weave basket, baskets, and every night he would undo what he had done. Why? You know, where are the fruits of your labor at the end of the day? Do you know? Do you know what your weaving is? Are you aware that you're weaving? Or are you just waiting, you know, trying to move through the next one and the next one, waiting for the end of the day, when you can just relax, veg out? Actually, we shouldn't insult vegetables. You know, they're fully alive. <laughs> veg out doesn't really work. And if your focus is on getting things done, the, there's a the slight problem is that they never are. They, they are never done, no matter how hard you work, how much you work, they are never done. And the other problem is, you know, we're usually moving too fast, which means things don't have a, a chance to touch us, we don't have a chance to touch them. If all of our attention is on getting the job done, there's not much left over for another. The good news is that another doesn't like that, and they'll let you know, as I said before, if you're paying attention. I experienced that very directly. I, not that long ago, I had a conflict with someone at work, and it was basically because I wanted something done, I wanted it done in a particular way, and I wanted it done at a particular time. And so I was pushing. And I couldn't see, really. I couldn't see the person in front of me. And it came to a head, and our teacher intervened and suggested that we sit down and talk to each other. And he asked her to tell me the ways in which I had hurt her. And he asked me to, to listen, which I was ready to do. What I wasn't prepared for is that when we got to the meeting, she pulled out a sheet of paper that she unfolded several times. So it was quite big, <laughs> with very, very small writing of all the notes that she'd taken, of all the ways that I had hurt her. And in fact, she ran out of room and so started to turn the paper. And so there was writing around the, the margins and upside down, and it came around and to the other side. And that's what got me. Because what she was saying was not a surprise. I mean, I. You know, again, if you're paying attention, you know yourself. So what she was saying didn't surprise me, though it was good to hear it. But it was seeing a visual representation of all the ways in which I can hurt another person that really stopped me. And, you know, and that was just a representative sample. <laughs> I'm sure there's many more ways. And afterwards, I thought, you know, what was I trying to protect? Because I wanted to get the job done, yes. But for what? So let's say that it was done a little bit later, or not exactly as I wanted it. 
what's the option of that me? It's my image of myself and how I perceive me and how I want others to perceive me. What did I think I needed to get that I didn't have? And, you know, when you put two people together, conflict is more likely than not, given enough time for them to be together. But it's not inevitable. If it was, we wouldn't be practicing. It's not inevitable. But we do have to be willing to slow down. This is Neruda again. I love all things, not because they are passionate or sweet-smelling, but because, I don't know, because this ocean is yours and mine. These buttons and wheels and little forgotten treasures, fans upon whose feathers love has scattered blossoms, glasses, knives, and scissors, all bear the trace of someone's fingers on their handle or surface, the trace of a distant hand lost in the depths of forgetfulness. You know, when I was typing this line, I thought it said land, the trace of a distant land lost in the depths of forgetfulness. And that would work too. When you forget yourself, there are whole lands on the handle of a shovel. Generations of men and women in a table made by hand. That little corner store that's been handed down a family. And it's been loved. It's been loved. That's really the key, isn't it? Because when you love what you do, then what you touch springs to life. So it's not just a business transaction. If you happen to buy and sell things, that it not be just about buying and selling. I, I struggle with that quite a bit you know, in our work because we have to make money. But it's so unsatisfying when it's just about that. And so much of it, because now it's done on the web, there is so little connection. There was a man, an antique seller in Italy, and his store was, was ramshackle. I mean, it was falling down. He didn't have a lot of money. And he was selling these antiques. And this woman came, an American, very uh, wealthy, and was going to buy a pair of cherubs. And he quoted an exorbitant price. And she took out her traveler's checks and started to make a check. He pushed her out of the store. He turned purple with rage and pushed her out of the store. And he said, I can't do business with you. I can't do business with you. And she kept looking at him like, I'm ready. I'm ready to pay. He's like, get out. Get out of my shop. And somebody, a friend of his, was standing there and said, you need the money. What happened? And he said, you know, if I was starving, that's one thing. But I'm not. She didn't even, she didn't even do me the courtesy of assuming that I would try to take advantage of her. Said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a businessman, I'm a merchant. She didn't try to haggle, she didn't try to bring the price down. I mean, it, it would have been shameful for me to, to give them to her at that price without any interaction. He said, I'm not going to do business like this. Imagine. Imagine if this is how we did business. That's why I'm so against Amazon, you know? It's like, it's, it's selling at a loss, which is okay, you know, we all like a sale, but the amount of work that went into a book, let's say, the resources, the, 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 just the water, the trees, the time, not to mention the writer's work, 
for $3, $4.99. Is that really what we think things are worth? Really? No wonder we're perpetually dissatisfied. And we don't do that just with things, with people. You know, and I don't mean just human trafficking, but filling beds in a hospital or in a nursing room you know, to reach a quota. Acquiring good students for the uh, school's reputation. I mean, there are so many areas, I think, in our life where the, the tail is wagging the dog that it's amazing to me that we're not distressed, more distressed, or confused, at the very least. Well, maybe, maybe we are confused, and that's why we're here. But not confused enough to know that it doesn't have to be this way. And so here we are, on this gorgeous Sunday morning, spending time sitting quietly, and so that we can let ourselves be touched by one another, by things, by that trace of a distant hand lost in the depths of forgetfulness, and having forgotten ourselves to come back to the world, which is, in fact, of our own creation. <clears throat> That's, this is what the Buddha saw. This is why we can't say we're a victim, that things are happening to us. That what we do, as Daito would so often say, and what happens to us is exactly the same thing. And that's why we can be free. That's exactly why we can be free. So living rightly doesn't mean living perfectly. It means living humanly. Touching and, and letting be touched. So we shouldn't forget our power, which is enormous. It's more vast than we like to think, because it's a little frightening. But without it, we would stay imprisoned. We would stay bound. So living rightly doesn't only mean these things. It also means that all of it, as Neruda said, is so close that it's a part of my being, not forgetting that. All of it is so close that it's a part of my being. And, you know, actually with, with respect and humility for Neruda's words, I would say it is so close that it was, is, and always will be my very being. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.